Well, this is The New Activist, a weekly show that features conversations with activists and leaders who are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues from the front lines of the war against injustice. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and it is a joy to be with you today on this season-ending show, and it's a special one. I have wanted to have Michael Ware on the show for a long, long time. Michael directed faith outreach for President Obama's 2012 re-election campaign. He was also one of the youngest White House staffers in American modern history. And wait until you hear how he got the job. It is pretty awesome. <laughs> so I really respect him. Uh, he served in the White House's faith-based initiative during President Obama's first term, where he led evangelical outreach and helped manage the White House's engagement on religious and values issues, including adoption and anti-human trafficking efforts. He is also the author of Reclaiming Hope, Lessons Learned in the Obama White House about the future of faith in America. Michael is a really impressive person with an impressive resume, but I also really wanted to have him on the show because of his perspective. He has a really good way of kind of helping thread the needle of what is significant in politics. And also, I mean, I don't know if you're like me, but I feel like I oscillate between engaged slash enraged and completely apathetic. And Michael really gives me a lot of perspective just by reading his Twitter a lot. So you're, you're watching State of the Union and he's got a really interesting perspective and he's got something to say. So I'm going on and on about this, but I, I'm glad that this interview is going to happen and I'm glad it's going to happen with my colleague Eileen Campbell. Eileen, you've heard from her a few times on the show, but just as a reminder, she is the National Director for Advocacy and Mobilization for International Justice Mission. She has a keen political mind, and I really, when I when I knew Michael was going to be on the show, I just wanted to hear what Eileen would ask him, and so kindly, she agreed to just ask the questions. And so here is my friend Eileen Campbell chatting with Michael Ware. I was really um, interested in starting with uh, at the beginning of your book, you talk about, you give this description of your first day on the job in the White House. You're prepping the newly elected President Obama. It's February of 2009, and it's the day of the National Prayer Breakfast. And there were a lot of interesting details that you shared about that day, not least of which is the fact that you were only 20 years old. And I just thought, what in the world? So just would you tell us a little bit, how, how did you end up working in the West Wing at age 20? And just describe that first day on the job for us. Yeah, so it was, uh, well, first of all, it's really, really great to be talking with you. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a, a heady time and, and sort of a heady, heady thing. I, I uh, come to DC to study at George Washington University, uh, motivated by my faith. I'd, I'd become a Christian when I was 15. I had an interest in politics that predated uh, uh, coming to faith. And I came to the place where I wanted to figure out what it meant to be faithful in public things. And so uh, coming to DC made sense for that. Uh, I ended up, well, it's, it's kind of a crazy story. So I was, uh, I believe it was my second year of college and I was supposed to be uh, leading a group of students to the democratic winner convention in uh, February of 2007 mm -hmm. uh and i show up at the hotel where it's taking place uh and not much is kind of going on but i figure if i walk around the hotel long enough I'll, I'll find where this convention is taking place well after 10 15 minutes i sort of give up and ask the receptionist you know where is this thing and she goes oh oh honey that's not for another couple days i just had the complete <laughs> wrong date for this this convention, so I'm embarrassed and dejected, and uh, I'm, I'm leaving the hotel through the lobby. Uh, and as I'm walking through the lobby to head out the hotel, uh, a young senator, a senator by the name of Barack Obama, is walking in for meetings the day or two before the convention. Uh, I'd followed his career 
from the Harvard Law Review and uh, his his uh, uh, his campaign for Senate, his 2004 DNC convention speech, and uh, uh, basically, I told him I wanted to work for him, and uh, and uh, uh, I got connected to some some staff. And uh, 10 months later, I was in Iowa. You just walked right up to him in the lobby of the hotel and said, I want to work well, for so you, sir. It was, uh, he had not yet announced he was going to run for president. He'd do that in a in a few days. And so he didn't have a Secret Service detail. He didn't sort of uh, have the apparatus. It, it, he kind of walked up to me. I mean, it was, he, he just had a couple staff with him. And, and, uh, and, and yeah, that, that's kind of... Uh, that's kind of how it how it happened. I had, of course, no idea at that point what what it could uh, uh, lead to. I was kind of kind of ignorant of how how things how things worked, but I I just knew that I wanted to uh, to get involved. Well, so your day job, and uh, you know, fast forward, Barack Obama is elected president, and you step into working in the White House Office of Faith Based That's and right. Neighborhood Partnerships, and this was the office that. President George W. Bush had created. Some people were actually surprised that President Obama maintained it. Um, what was the what was the vision for that office? Well, you know, a lot of people still don't understand. So every, everyone knows Barack Obama was a community organizer. What a lot of folks don't realize is that uh, his his job as a community organizer was funded by the Catholic Church, uh, and uh, mm. his specific um, uh, the the the, the uh, the kind of organizing he did, you know, there are different models for organizing, a, a, as you know. Uh, the the model of organizing that he was working on was was church based. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are all these stories of uh, the, these pastors who are still, you know, doing ministry in Chicago, uh, recalling what it was like when Barack Obama, as a community organizer knocked on mm -hmm. their church doors for the first time, uh, and, and what what that was uh, what that was like, and so uh, his idea of the role that faith played in the lives of American people, uh, his idea of the role that the church and religious institutions played in the lives of their communities was was really well developed, and that's something that. I think motivated and led him to see the potential uh, in in the White House faith based office and in the in the whole initiative, uh, even when uh, it, it had a pretty negative reputation by the end of the the Bush administration. Uh, uh, but with the economic trouble our, our nation was facing, with with the big things he wanted to accomplish in terms of Reducing unemployment, fighting poverty, uh, uh, strengthening the social safety net. Uh, uh, the president thought the faith community had had a vital role to play in that. Mm. And so, I know a big part of this work that you were involved with leading was seeking common ground between the faith community and policymakers in the administration. Can you give us an example of a time when you felt? really hopeful and when, when common ground was actually forged. And then maybe an example on, on the opposite end of when people on both sides really missed the boat and and not only failed to build that bridge, but even made the polarization worse. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, uh, there were, you know, people always uh, sort of ask me, you know, now that you've you know seen how the sausage is made, you know, up close or whatever, you know, you must be awfully, you know, cynical. And uh, <laughs> I I left the White House more uh, optimistic uh, about our country and the role of the faith community than when I when I entered it. Yes, there were definitely times of controversy and division, uh, but uh, I don't think folks realize, you know, the faith based initiative in the White House. You know, eighty five percent of my work was working uh, to support faith-based organizations and other nonprofits that wh whose mission was to serve those in need. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I, part of my job, yes, was sort of navigating uh, politics and uh, difficult issues at the intersection of faith and politics. Uh, uh, but so much of my job was seeing the very best of the faith community. And so, you know, I could give you 
tons of examples, uh, everything from uh, the work we did around adoption and foster care uh, to uh, actually, I'll give you an example around around uh, human trafficking. So mm-hmm. uh, uh, anti-human trafficking efforts were a part of my portfolio, my policy portfolio in the White House. Uh, and, and it was a great you know, honor to work uh, on those issues. Uh, I, I had a, a, a meeting in the West Wing in January of 2012 um, that was a briefing about, uh, actually, was a, I was briefing a, a senior staff member about issues that mattered to young people of faith. And mm-hmm. that uh, uh, I had maybe uh, 11 or 12 issues to cover. Uh, we had a we had a nice you know, maybe forty five minute long meeting. Uh, on my way out, uh, the uh, the staff member asked me, uh, Michael, we've covered a lot of ground here, but if 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 you could tell me just one thing, if there was only one thing here that we could uh, look at more closely, what would it be? And I had the opportunity to pull out of you know my my folder uh, a photo of an event that had taken place just a, a couple days earlier at the Georgia Dome. Uh, you might remember mm-hmm. this. This was the Passion Conference in 2012, uh, where they packed out the Georgia Dome, raised uh, college students, raised $3 million over the course of just a couple days uh, to combat uh, human trafficking. Uh, and I was able to sort of leverage that to show that this wasn't just sort of um, uh, 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 this wasn't sort of a, a hollow effort. These, these were uh, there were thousands and thousands of people who cared deeply about their faith, cared deeply about the issue of of human trafficking, and were willing to put their money and their resources and their time uh, where, where where their mouth was, uh, and the 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 fallout from that meeting was uh really substantial uh, f- uh a month after that meeting the president was mentioning the passion conference at the uh national prayer breakfast and calling on uh the government and faith community to do more to combat uh, combat human trafficking uh a, a few months after that for the first time instead of the interagency uh basically all the cabinet uh, uh, officials meeting on human trafficking instead of that meeting taking place in some basement of the State Department. It was taking place at the White House. The president would give later that year at the Clinton Go- Global Initiative the longest speech on slavery of any president since Abraham Lincoln, uh, which is just an amazing thing to think about. Mm-hmm. And uh, resulting from that speech, uh, was uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of additional commitments from the U.S. Uh, to combat human trafficking. Now that was a result of, uh, you know, there there are multiple streams that go into an effort like that. It was the 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 passion and the work of the faith community. It was also uh, uh, the, the women's rights community was uh, was uh, making uh, similar appeals. Uh, f- using their resources, uh, there were uh, uh, there were human rights groups that were uh, making similar appeals. There were uh, human trafficking advocacy organizations that were doing the same, and all of that sort of contributed uh, to to really substantial progress. And so, I, I have. I have dozens and dozens of stories uh, 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 like that of just that different kinds of people working together for the common good. Uh, and uh, again, it's just really encouraging. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eileen, you, you asked about, um, you asked about sort of uh, t- times when I, when I haven't seen that work. Uh, <laughs> and Well, before you say that though, I, I just want to pause on what you just shared because it's so, it's so remarkable. I mean, what you're describing is the impact of thousands of, Christian college students uh, on the president of the United States. You know, uh, they come together at this conference. They all raise their voices and say, "This is a this is a priority for me as as an American and as a Christian." And just that you're able to sort of paint that direct line between them stepping right. up 
and the president, you know, making that speech, initiating the, you know, the elevation of the task force, the hundreds of millions of dollars, cleaning up of supply chains and all of that. It's just, it's just yes. kind of a remarkable thing to pause on. <laughs> and uh, yes, it's very encouraging. There are certainly barriers to uh, civic involvement. There are certainly reasons uh, to be um, less than optimistic about uh, your ability to influence the political process. At the same time, over and over again, I've seen in my personal work face to face, and we've seen throughout history, you know, the ability of even a small group of committed citizens being able to influence those who represent them in positions of power. Uh, and, and it's really important not to lose a sight of that potential. Yes, there are structural things we we have to address. We need to make sure that everyone has equal access to vote. We need to make sure that uh, technology is uh, facilitating civic involvement, not convoluting it. Uh, but at the end of the day, the the uh, the mechanisms of uh, of of, of civic involvement and protests and advocacy um, do do have a real impact. Now, I think I think something that can be um, something that could be discouraging, especially for young people who are uh, uh, who are used to uh, being able to see the inputs, uh, being able to see their input and sort of uh, the direct output of their actions. Um, being able to say, well, I, I donated, mm -hmm. you know, $50 to this. And now I can watch on a, a, a webcam, the, the, the well that my money, uh, you know, contributed to, uh, or, uh, or, uh, it, it politics yeah. doesn't work that way. There, there's not the, the kind of clean, mm -hmm. um, input output sort of satisfaction that can be discouraging to a lot of folks um what i'd encourage folks <laughs> to, people to think about is yeah. uh, uh that th th actually it's when you're able to bind your voice uh your influence with others um uh and able to 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 make progress even if the credit is not directly sort of uh able to be directly attributed to to your input uh that's that's a powerful thing and the impact of that affects so many people mm -hmm. and now i think i mean you're you're addressing concerns that anyone in america right now might be having about whether it's worth their time and effort to engage in the political process but as an as an organizer myself who's worked with a lot of faith communities I've heard a lot of people express trepidation about whether Christians specifically should be involved in politics at all. How do you respond to them? Yeah, you know, Christians should be, uh, I think there is a, a, a mode of political involvement that is becoming more commonplace today um, that Christians absolutely should not, uh, should not participate in. And, and that is a a, a political involvement that is um, uh, that, that 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 treats politics as a, a kind of a game, as a um, as as a form of sort of identity mm -hmm. expression, uh, and I think that can be really dangerous. Uh, on the on the other hand, um, Christians ought to be motivated to participate in politics. Because politics is one of the essential forums in which we can love our neighbor. Um, politics is an area in which we can advance justice and affirm human dignity. And whether we participate or not, uh, politi politics is going to have an effect uh, on the people generally and particularly, in some ways more profoundly, um, uh, uh, on the disenfranchised, on uh, on on the poor, uh, on the least of these, and and uh, you, you know I, I try to be 
careful. I I don't make a case that sort of Christian political involvement is uh, is uh, essential across time and place. Right. I, I think when when we think about other forms of government, when we think about uh, you know monarchies and uh, uh, and you know dictatorships, I'm not sure. Uh, what the Christian role is for political involvement in those systems. What I can say is that in this time and place in in America, uh, and in and in you know liberal democracies around uh, representative democracies around the world, um, we do not choose as Christians whether to have political influence. We already have it by virtue of being citizens. The only choice we have to make is how we're going to steward that responsibility. Mm-hmm. And that gets to a, 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 a question about, um, about, uh, you know, uh, about the kingdom of God <laughs> and whether, whether, whether we choose to, uh, whether we mm-hmm. choose to, to use that, which is at our disposal, um, in a, in a way that, uh, that that reflects the the commitments that we have and the values that we have. So, I guess on a, on a related note, what what would you say? How would you frame up the the risks that you see for our country, for our democracy, when people of faith withdraw or check out from the political process? Yeah. Well, gosh. So there. Are, um, uh, l- let me take this in a few ways. I- I'd say first. N- Many of the impulses that are leading people to withdraw from politics, that it's too divisive, that it's uh, not focused on the common good, but seems to um, seems to be focused on self-aggrandizement. Uh, these are the very impulses our politics most needs. Um, and, and so I, I often come across this sort of idea that by... Um, by withdrawing from politics, uh, you're somehow, you know, weakening uh, the influence of politics in America. That you're somehow sending some kind of uh, some kind of message that is going to uh, sort of shake up the system. And I just guess that that's not that's not right. It's not how it works. Instead, what you're doing is seeding uh, the political space to the very same impulses um, that that led you to leave it in the first place. In other words, you're you're empowering uh, the very forces and the very kinds of ideas right. uh, that make you not like politics in the first place. Uh, right. I loved I loved in your book how you said withdrawal is not a prophetic message that those in power ought to shape up. They are not listening. <laughs> I thought that was a very important message. Yeah. You know, it's it's funny. There's, um, you know, my, my book covers a lot of, you know, sort of, uh, I thought it was important for the book to not avoid or be evasive on controversial topics. And so my, my book covers a lot of very tense issues, but nothing gets more pushback than those few paragraphs on political withdrawal and uh, and independence, and, and really? it's just been a fascinating, fascinating thing to see. Uh, 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 but it's led to very good conversations. Uh, I, I will say, I feel uh, more strongly about it now than I did when I wrote it. Uh, it's uh, some of the conversations have, have sort of confirmed uh, my instincts, and I'd say the way our our politics has played out as has I think uh, um, you know the book came out. T- a couple of years ago, the way our politics has played out since then, it's kind of um, uh, led me to to double down uh, on this. And so, uh, so, so uh, you know, so, so I think that there's a there's a danger of when when we withdraw, we're we're ceding the ground to to bad actors and bad ideas. And then I'd also say, you know, it sends a message to our those in our community um, that their welfare is is not worth our time or concern uh that that the way that politics affects them is uh mm-hmm. that we're indifferent to it uh, and, and and that becomes a, a, a that becomes a missional issue that becomes right. a question particularly when we're talking about calls for sort of uh 
Christians to withdraw from politics, that becomes a a question of, of of witness. What does it say to our neighbors when 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 we say that uh, that political impacts are just something that we don't care about all that much? Yeah. Well, and you know, on this idea of what does a my Christian political witness look like in this moment that is so fraught, it's so contentious. And I think about this um, very common call to civility in our politics. This was something President Obama talked about a lot because his years in the White House were were also very contentious. I know this is a core value for you too. Um, and you know, it's one of those ideas that I think if you don't examine it, too deeply, this idea of civility in politics, it can kind of sound like a call to just be nice to each other. And then on the other side of the spectrum, this this language about civility is sometimes criticized as something that you know powerful people say when they're uncomfortable with the expression of anger, you know, by those who've been victimized or oppressed. So how do you think about this idea? Like how, you know, I know you've thought about it deeply. When you think about this call to civility, in our politics, what does that look like? What does that mean to you? Yeah, so there there is this sort of this sort of argument uh, gaining a bit of steam now um, that civility is is uh, is an imposition of the powerful on the powerless. That it's uh, that it's uh, unjust, sort of on its own face. Um, I, I would ask people when when you think of uh, who is uh, of the greatest purveyors of incivility in our politics today, who who and what do you think of? Do you think of uh, do you think of the poor? Do you do you think of the disenfranchised? Do you think of those who? Um, who don't have a voice in our politics, or do you think of the, the, the powerful? Do you do you think of those? Um, do you think of uh, uh, do you think of uh, uh, political interests mm-hmm. with millions and millions of dollars of backing that inject bile into our political system? Uh, the answer is clearly the latter, and there there is this kind of uh, there is this. We we need to really carefully examine the idea that some are promoting in the name of justice and in the in the in the name of caring for the disenfranchised. That somehow the disenfranchised and the poor are incapable of civility. Uh, that by their very circumstances, uh, they are they are they are incapable of uh, of of uh understanding what civility is that's not been my experience at all i've i've found that the 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 poor and the disenfranchised are uh are very familiar with civility because they face incivility every day they face incivility when uh uh when uh when politicians uh talk about uh immigrants uh from uh, Mexico being rapists, they face incivility when entire political parties try and challenge their voting rights. They face incivility when people suggest that their very religions are passe and uh, somehow unfit for modern life. And so uh, I- I've become very passionate about this issue of civility because uh, the way I've seen civility play out is it actually sets the form and structure of our political involvement in a way that provides access to political influence and political position uh, uh, to the disenfranchised that they wouldn't have otherwise. Civility actually puts some constraints around the behavior of the powerful uh, who would otherwise be able to act in in any way that uh, that they they saw fit. Uh, and, and so I, I think it's very important for Christians to think not just in a utilitarian way about our politics, but to think about the spirit of our politics, think about what an uncivil politics, um, which an uncivil politics uh, in its worst form is really a, a hateful politics. It's it's a politics that 
uh, even drops the pretense of seeking the good of your fellow citizens. So think about what a what a politics of hate, what a politics of incivility it does to the spirit of people involved in that political system. And uh, again, I just point out it's it's soul crushing, and we know it's soul crushing uh, because we've um, we've endured a um, a, a a politics where incivility has become embraced in some corners um, recently. And we need to, instead of responding to that incivility uh, by suggesting that it's some kind of uh, tool that we can use for our own benefit, uh, that the incivility uh, is not wrong as long as it's used to uh to to in in the name of the the right policies um we need to reject that view and actually say that do you know what uh, our uh sort of prudential policy goals did not justify dishonoring the dignity of the people with whom we share a political community hmm. and and at the end of the day th- that's what civility is about yeah. civility is about a a, a a a set of uh, norms about how we treat uh, uh, strangers, uh, sort of uh, uh, strangers in our midst. In other words, you know, you wouldn't think about civility in the same way with your buddies, with your friends, or with your family, um, uh, because you know them. You don't have to. Uh, the same norms don't have to be uh, sort of abided by because you all know each other, but. In a large, diverse, pluralistic country like ours, we don't all know each other, and so there there has to be some sort of uh, set of norms. What what Richard Mao, the theologian uh, who was uh, president of Fuller Seminary, calls uh, a kind of uh, public politeness that that within that framework we can advance our most sincere convictions. Mm. I think um, we know one important distinction would be that you know. Incivility is not the same as uh, expressing anger. You know that, right. that anger can be an appropriate and a moral response to injustice. So we're not saying don't express your anger. You know, but but there's a difference there between finding an appropriate way of expressing. You know. Uh, legitimate anger and complaints when something is wrong and and this idea of incivility in our politics. Yeah, yeah I think that's absolutely right and you know I think I I think we we've seen expressions of anger that that push people um that that draw people in uh, and, and we know just on sight how different that is from an anger that really isn't um, directed towards the public good, or really isn't, um, but but an but an anger that 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 comes from a place of wishing the ill upon who we deem to be our political opponents. And Christians just need to be very careful about justifying, um, uh, you know, if if to love is to will the good of another, <laughs> then, then then to to hate is to wish their ill. We need to be very careful about sort of um, saying, do you know what the the other side or this politician is so bad um, that who who cares <laughs> who cares if we uh, if we put on public displays of of hate toward that politician? And then you know, I'd also say. Um, you, you know, there, there's a there's a mode of application involved here where uh, certainly elected officials should be held to a different standard than uh, than people who are not in public life, and so you, you know, uh, I, I I rarely see uh, charges of incivility mm-hmm. at uh, someone on a a uh, street corner who's yelling about a uh, a uh, uh, political issue i think i think uh though the, clearly there are applications in all public settings uh, i i do tend to focus my attention when it comes to civility uh questions of civility on those who have some level of the public trust and have been uh, are in positions of of influence. Yeah. Well, and if we think about you know part of the work of um, 
enabling civility in our public life is is this work of recognizing the humanity of of those who disagree with us and seeking the good in those people who disagree with us. Um, you you've also said that you know real and lasting progress on the things that matter to us it it is it's not even it's not possible unless we figure out how to work with and listen to those people who disagree with us and and you've said that that actually requires that we create you've said cracks in our echo chambers and i love that phrase cracks in our echo chambers and i i wondered what advice do you have for for us in terms of how do we create those those cracks in our echo chambers yeah and right it's all about the recognition that we we all we all have to live together and sort of pursuing our policy goals with the with really the expectation um, and with with the idea that we don't even need to speak to the concerns of uh, broad swaths of the public so long as we can beat them in a political battle um, really undermines social cohesion really undermines our ability to then uh, come out of politics and mm-hmm. expect any level of trust uh, when we go uh, uh, to to our communities uh, that that idea of uh, make, forming cracks in our echo chambers you know I, I think it, it can't be fairly straightforward I mean part of it is about making sure that you're seeking out uh, uh, articulate voices uh, of views that are not your own or that are not your own yet, or that you don't understand. Um, And so, you know, this can be through, you know, reading, reading books uh, from Mm -hmm. people who are different. I think on social media, I think it's, if you're, if you're going to be on social media, which is, um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm active on, on some social media, but that, um, that's become more and more of a sort of uh, reflection point for me lately. But <laughs> if you're going to be active on social media, uh, th- then I'd say it's almost you know an obligation to ensure uh, that you are not just uh, listening to um, uh, and and sort of taking part in just your stream of the conversation. That you should be making sure that you're inviting other uh, voices uh, into the conversation to influence you. Um, I think that there is a real value in reading diverse uh, news outlets. And so um, on, uh, I'm par- part of an organization called the Ann Campaign, and we have a digital mm-hmm. platform called the, the Crux and the Call. And uh, uh, just about every weekday, you can go on the Crux and the Call and View something called today's essentials, which is really just four articles on the pressing issues of the day, and and we work pretty hard to source those articles from uh, trusted, vetted sources, but that are uh, diverse politically, um, uh, and that that can be that can be really important as well. And then you know we know from social science. Uh, and various uh, sort of sociological research that has taken place. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have not only, not only are we in echo chambers because of media and technology, though that's had a profound influence. We also are segregated ideologically and geographically. So we only live near people who think the way that we do. Um, there was a Stanford study uh, that showed um, so in the in the 1960s, parents were asked, "Who would you not want your child to marry?" In the 60s, uh, their answer was, uh, "I would not want my child to marry someone of a different uh, race, and I would not want my child to marry someone of a different religion." Right. In 2014, the same question was asked. the The top response was. Uh, if the parent was a Democrat, I would not want my child to marry a Republican. <laughs> if the parent was a, Repu- a Republican, I would not want my child to marry a Democrat. And so, th- think about um, the the impact if if our most personal, intimate social relationships 
are guided and mm. dictated by something as fleeting and liquid as as political identity and, and we we really need to be working to to break out of that um in intentional ways mm. ah, two steps forward one step back right yeah. <laughs> uh, you know speaking of sociologists i was so um provoked by the the work of um arlie hockshield you know who did exactly what you're saying who left her uh home in uh yeah, in california absolutely. and you know Right, did this amazing study of people in, in Louisiana. And one of the really practical um, pieces of advice that she offered coming out of, of that study um, and her work to be in deep relationship with people who had completely opposite political beliefs from her was to figure out how to turn off your alarm system. And uh, I thought that was a great advice because we oh, it's so yeah, easy to get yeah, triggered and then advice. to shut down and then to fail to listen. Um, so I've I've that that advice really stuck with yeah. me as well to turn off your alarm system. Um, I I've heard that I've heard you talk about the idea of political homelessness and how many people of faith might be having this experience right now of feeling politically homeless. Like there's no political party that really feels like the right fit. You, you've said that feeling politically homeless, that shouldn't, that's not actually our problem as people of faith. What's, what's our real problem? Yeah. I've said that the, the crisis is, is not that we feel politically homeless. The, the crisis is that we ever thought we could make a home in politics at all. And, and by that, I, I mean, um, uh, this idea um, that all of the various motivations and pulls and interests involved in politics, that somehow out of that is going to come some perfectly comfortable uh, political party or candidate for, for us who, who fits our views, which as Christians... Um, Yes, we can learn and gain from different ideologies and philosophies and uh, and political actors, um, but we better be running all of that through the filter of our faith and through the filter of scripture and the the filter of the tradition of the church and of, of uh, our, our, our the, the social teaching that's available to us uh, through through our face and um, uh, and. I understand the temptation uh, to 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 to, um, to seek that kind of perfect home in politics, and obviously we're in politics to to make it better according to our views. And so, hopefully, no matter whatever political party we find ourselves in, hopefully we're we're there, um, not because that party is is shaping and forming us, but mm -hmm. in the hope that that will be a positive influence on that party. Um, I, I, I tell people, people often tell me, you know, uh, I don't see how I could register for, for a political uh, party. My, my conscience won't allow it. And, you know, I want to take that seriously, but, but I also point out, you know, when you go to the DMV and, and register for a political party, there is no fine print at the bottom that says, I hereby sign over my conscience to every jot and tittle of the party platform. <laughs> Again, you're not, uh, the political parties, were, uh, political parties serve as vehicles uh, that help organize public opinion and interests uh, for the political process. Mm -hmm. That's it. it. It's up to the American people. It's up to us to uh, to determine exactly how that's how that's lived out. Um, again, uh, Christians do not go to politics seeking to find a tribe, seeking to have themselves uh, affirmed. Our political interest is in loving our neighbors. It's in advancing uh, justice and affirming dignity. Uh, and we get our our sort of needs for community elsewhere. It's it's been I interesting to me uh, how much sort of politics is increasingly um, be becoming this sort of social club, and and we need to we need to be very careful about organizing our social lives around. Uh, political ideas. Um, that is not sort of 
that is not solid or healthy ground on which to determine our relationships or our affection. Hmm. Yeah. Reading your book, it seems like one of the the ways to kind of understand the arc of your journey um, is in terms of the way that your understanding of hope evolved over the course of those years in the White House and on the campaign trail. And you thought you knew what hope meant, what it was all about when you started out. But on your last day in the job, you recount sitting alone at a restaurant, bar after the national prayer breakfast, and your understanding of hope had really shifted. Share a little bit about what changed for you. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a really interesting question. You know, I, I think when I, when I started in, in government and, and, and in politics, I, th- I think I had uh, the, the right sort of ideas in my head about hope, but, but I'm not sure that they, <laughs> those ideas had really migrated to, to my heart. In other words, if, if you had asked me, you know, what do you place your hope in? I, I probably would have given the, you know, quote unquote, right answer. But um, it really took for me um, living through what I lived through and understanding myself more mm-hmm. and and where where I was truly placing my hope to to understand something about myself, but also about our politics generally. And, you know, I, I just suggest to folks that uh, politics is a very important thing. It's a, it's a very important form in our lives. I think I am, I am very glad to see the conversation turning, I think, uh, especially among Christians and especially among young Christians, uh, to a place of, of understanding that Political involvement is is important, and it 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 affects our communities, and and I I applaud that. It's what I've worked much of my really my entire adulthood to uh to help make the case for political involvement. But but I'd also say we're also you know uh, so much of history, especially sort of evangelical history, is um, a series of uh, pendulum swings and sort of. Uh, reactions and overreactions, and, and I just I, I'd caution folks that they not get their affections uh, mixed up, that they not get their priorities mixed up. It is not safe to engage in politics with your feet planted in politics. The safest place for you to engage uh, politics is with your feet planted in the gospel, um, and, and it. it it, it's when you're grounded in real, lasting hope, hope uh, in a God who wills justice and loves justice and cares more about justice than we ever will. It's when we're grounded in that hope of a God who is, who is, who is not uh, passively waiting for justice, for, for justice to come, but a, but a God who wills justice and is coming towards us to bring that justice it's it's when our hope is planted in that way then then we see all of these possibilities for uh for for progress and betterment um in politics and in other forms and areas of life but but when we start to ground our hope in political progress um as a as an ultimate source of meaning um then we lose we lose sight of i think the reality of our faith i think we lose sight of uh we lose sight of the the very principles and values that ought to guide our political engagement so so for instance if if you if your hope is ultimately placed in politics th- then it becomes very easy to justify all kinds of uh, uh, all kinds of sort of intermediary evils in order to uh, hopefully achieve that one policy or elect that one candidate who you think is going to uh, effectuate uh, your hope. Uh, and um, Christians have the resources uh, in our faith 
to put our hope in the right place and then to to allow that hope to 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 fill us and to motivate us to seek the good of our neighbors in a way that's reflective of uh, uh, of of our faith and of a God who loves them much more than we ever could. It's a different view of time as well, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I um, you know, I I, uh, I have a a good friend Tyler Wig Stevenson who wrote a book. Um, called the world is not ours to save, and um, Tyler is a longtime activist. He uh, started an organization called the Two Futures Project, which was a, really an essential player in uh, some of the uh, 21st century advances we've made on nuclear nonproliferation efforts. Um, and, and Tyler wrote a book, and then I'd also say Jenna Leonardella. Um, who was the founder of Bloodwater Mission, wrote, wrote a book that uh, pulled on some of these same themes. And then Eileen, our, our friend uh, uh, Bethany, uh, who, who's written several books on, uh, on, on justice and activism. Uh, it's the people who have been doing the work the longest, mm-hmm. um, who have proven their commitment out over time, who tend to have the most... Um, a grounded view of what activism can achieve and what it cannot and and th- th- what what hope we should place in activism and and what uh uh where our ultimate hope should be kept for uh, it, it's often and i don't know if this has been your experience it's it's often the the, the new converts to politics it's the people who um uh and advocacy the the people who maybe uh feel like uh, gosh, I was asleep for so long. I can't believe I was ignoring these issues. Uh, but now, now I'm on, now I'm on fire and, and, and now I'm going to care about, uh, care about this. It's often those people who can be, um, to go back to our conversation on civility, the, the most uncivil. It's often those people who can be sort of, um, uh, emotionally manipulative when it comes to uh, their advocacy and the way they speak for their views. It's it's the people who have who have actually been you know laborers <laughs> who, um, who who have seen the trajectory of of issues who who know where conversation where uh, where the conversation on uh, on policy issues uh, has been not just in the last six months, but over the course of decades that, uh, I, I think have a, um, sometimes can have a healthier perspective. Um, and to be able to take that long view, which again, is not sort of a view that says that change can wait. It's, it's actually a, a, a view that, um, mm. that understands how change is made. Um, that that I, I think is is needed mm. right now. That's right, Rex. You have to stick around for a while to be able to tell that That's longer right. story, right? Yes. Of the, like the zigzag right. of progress, you know. Yeah, that's great. We're living in this time. It's that of just deep yeah. polarization and what sometimes feels like disintegration. But you write that the state of our politics reflects the state of our souls. And that's convicting. <laughs> uh, so tell, tell us, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I think the easiest thing to do right now is to blame our politicians, to blame you know the system itself. And certainly there's a lot of blame to go around for polarization. But um, it, one, one thing coming out of my, you know, the last decade I've spent in, in politics um, that that I'm really convicted about is is that our politics at some fundamental level is responsive still to what citizens and voters want. And it's yes, we could look at all kinds of structural uh, changes um, to how our our elections work, uh, public financing of campaigns, uh, there are all kinds of things that we could sort of tinker with. But what we have to understand is that our politicians and the sort of political actors that surround them, the advocacy groups, the PACs, the the, the media pundits, they, they they're responsive to what to what we want. 
And politicians would not be selling what they're selling if they didn't have people buying it. Um, negative advertising is a great example. Everyone complains about negative advertising, and yet the best political science shows that uh, uh, negative advertising is much more positive than uh, uh, is much more effective than positive advertising. <laughs> it you know, works. It works. Um, and yes, you can. Uh, you can call for statesmen and stateswomen to resist those temptations. You can uh, call for great acts of political courage that, frankly, all usually uh, result in those politicians getting voted out of office. And so, uh, like, po- political courage is essential in moments of crisis. It's not very sustainable without a populist to support it. <laughs> uh, um, and so, um, yes, the state of our politics at some at the, I'd say the most fundamental level reflects the state of our souls. And so the, <laughs> the question is, how do we uh, build up this civic character um, uh, to uh, create a healthier reservoir from which our, our politicians and political actors can draw from? Uh, how, what are, you, you know, the thing I've really been thinking about since I, since I wrote my book, um, uh, is what are the 21st century spiritual disciplines speaking you know n- now really to 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 Christians though I think some of them uh, you know have a have a practical application as well but what are the 21st century spiritual disciplines that can create in us and help form in us and shape in us the the the, the character and the affections and the desires um that will um, that resist some of the harshest temptations of of of, of this time and this age, um, and, and that is where I'd like to see uh, uh, churches. Uh, that is one area where I'd like to see churches and Christians spending more time focusing on. It's very easy to reject the um, the, the 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 antics of. Uh, uh, the political party or uh, uh, advocates for causes that you oppose. Um, but, but what are we feeding into the system uh, that, that leads to even those politicians we support, those causes we support, uh, advancing uh, their, their mission and their goals in a way that ultimately um, is destructive to our politics and do we have the will to stop it, it, it do we have the will as christians to, to maybe be less effective in the short term politically but maintain our integrity and our faithfulness in public Well, that was Eileen Campbell and Michael Ware. I hope that it gives you something to consider and chew on and just hold on to as we move through what will certainly be a, uh, what's the word? Interesting, (laughs) maybe, political season as 2020 comes closer, as we get deep into a presidential election cycle, there is certainly going to be a lot of news and a lot of perspective to be needed. If you want to find out more about Michael, where he is speaking and writing, where he's doing appearances, all of that good stuff. Also, his Twitter, one of my favorite and most sensible Twitter follows. You can go to Michael Ware, that's W-E-A-R, michaelware.com. Of course, the conversation that started here today will continue over on the New Activist Facebook and Twitter. Both of those handles are New Activist Is. Oh, and Instagram. I always forget about that. And Instagram. All of it. New Activist Is. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you all about this episode. A huge thanks to the Brilliance who scored today's show. Tour dates, music, merch, etc. can be found at thebrilliancemusic.com. And if you didn't get a chance, listen to last week's show. One of my favorite shows to put together of all time. Really respect the Brilliance a great deal. A programming note, this is the end of our 
fifth season, if you can believe that. I, I am shocked, actually. <laughs> it's the end of the fifth season, so we're going to take a month or two off. We're going to gather some new episodes, kind of gather our thoughts a little bit. If you have any questions or comments or anything that you'd like to know or anything that would help make the show better, definitely reach out to us. All those social media channels that I mentioned before are great. Just send us a message. I would love to know what you think about the show as we prepare to get season six together. No spoiler alerts, but good stuff coming in the sixth season. I am excited for you to hear what we have in store. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Eileen Campbell, Michael Ware, and all of my colleagues at International Justice Mission, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends.